If you've got your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 3. It's going to take us a few moments to get there, but I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Now, we're starting this series called At the Movies because we believe that the movies and the TV shows and the entertainment world is searching for the purpose and the meaning of life, just like every person on the planet. And they may not have the answer to it like we do in Jesus, but they're looking, they're searching. Now, over the next four weeks, we're going to take four of the most popular movies of the last year, and we're going to ask the question, what do they say to us that the world is searching for, and how do we answer that? Now, just out of curiosity, today we're going to be talking about the movie The Greatest Showman. How many of you have actually seen that movie? All right, there you go, all right. If you haven't seen the movie, I'll give you a quick synopsis of it so that you can understand it. And then we're going to talk about kind of a central theme in the midst of it. The Greatest Showman is a loose, it's a movie loosely based on the life of P.T. Barnum. Now, the reason I say loosely is because it takes lots of um, liberties with his life. He wasn't nearly as great as Hugh Jackman makes him appear to be, all right? Um, But the story is of a poor kid who grew up as a tailor's son and trying to make it on his own, falls in love with an aristocratic, wealthy girl in the Northeast. And he promises her that he's going to make her life special. And so he sets out to try to do that. He starts just hustling on the street, grabbing newspapers from Trash where people throw them away and reselling them or, or, or doing some things that are not necessarily morally upstanding to try just to make it in life. He ends up going to work on the railroad, gets enough money to come back and take her away with him to the city where they're going to live a life happily ever after. There's only one problem. He can't get a job and keep it. And one day he decides he's going to, after fired from the last job that he kind of wants to hold... He goes into a bank and tells them he has something he doesn't have as collateral, and he opens up with a loan a building of curiosities. Well, it doesn't do very well. Nobody wanted to come see stuffed elephants and wax figures in the movie. Now, if you know the story of P.T. Barnum, it did really well. So he decides to add live people to it. He calls them freaks. Bearded lady, Irish giant, Tom Thumb, people start to come in droves. But it's not enough for him. He needs respectability, and so he begins to pursue a respectable arts career because the critics hate him, but the people love him. He's able to buy the house he promised his wife when they were children. He's able to have this beautiful family, but in the midst of that, it's not quite enough. So he finds an opera singer. Jenny Lind, actually a person, brings her on a tour of America and he begins to get into the places he never thought he could get into. Respectability starts to flow in. And yet in the midst of it, he comes to a place where his family is failing. There's a montage of scenes where he's on the road with this famous opera singer in prestigious opera houses And his two girls are doing ballet without him in the audience. His wife and his two girls walk away, move back in with her parents. And he comes to a crisis of faith. And what he actually believes is true. Now, in the midst of all of that, there's a poignant song 
that is sung by the opera singer. When she comes to America, brought by P.T. Barnum, and stands in one of the most prestigious houses in America, she opens her mouth. No one has heard her sing up until this point of the movie. He's not even sure P.T. Barnum hasn't heard her sing, if she can sing. And she opens her mouth and she sings a song that reflects the spirit and the lesson underneath the whole movie. And I thought the best way for you to experience that was to have me sing it for you today. Better yet, I thought Anne-Marie could sing it for you today. So here's Anne-Marie.
Now, listen to these words again. I won't sing them, but listen. All the shine of a thousand spotlights. All the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough. Never be enough for me. When I read that, I could not help but think of a book in the Old Testament. I actually thought of two people in the Bible. And the first comes from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. You have to turn with me this morning, but take and go to, I told you to be in Philippians 3, hold your hand there. Go to Ecclesiastes verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, who's the son of David, king in Jerusalem? Solomon. Now, what do we know about Solomon's life? He's rich, wise, wives. I didn't know if that was... When you get southern, wives and wives, it sounds very similar. You realize that, right? He had lots of wives. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem... Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. Never enough. What the person gained for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting it returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind. And the wind returns and it cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. More than anyone can say. And yet, the eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. Never enough. Solomon, the wealthiest, wisest, one of those powerful men of his lifetime, gets to life and he's towards the end and he says, Everything in this life, the pursuit of materialism, the pursuit of love, the pursuit of happiness, everything about it is meaningless, futile. There are some people that didn't think the book of Ecclesiastes really ought to be in the Bible. Now, it's always been in the Bible. You got that understanding. But there are some people that thought it shouldn't be. You know why? They thought it was too pessimistic. The scene in the movie The Greatest Showman is a, an interesting scene because it is at the moment that she begins to sing that song. The opera singer sings that song center stage. You can see the smile on P.T. Barnum's face because he is realizing his dream. And yet hearing the song in that moment, you realize even that isn't going to be enough to fill him. Solomon lived a life where he looked in every direction. And at the end of it, he got this sense that there was something more, that there was something more out there, that life cannot be about just 
making it through the day, just getting to the next morning, just getting enough money or having enough love or getting a bigger family or having all of that stuff. None of that could be there. That there had to be something more. C.S. Lewis says this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's Solomon's conclusion as well. At the end of Ecclesiastes, the book, chapter 12, verse 13, he says, When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands. Because this is for all humanity. Fear God and keep his commands. The reality of a movie like The Greatest Showman, and if you watch the movie, he thinks he finds his ultimate fulfillment in his family. We'll talk about that in a minute. Because the movie is a movie, so at the end it ends happily. It doesn't end with his family in destruction and him doing whatever he wants to do. He returns to his family, he leaves that life, he turns it over to someone else so that he can be with his wife and his kids and enjoy life together. And the movie implies that is what gives ultimate fulfillment. But we know that scripture, when it talks to us about where ultimate fulfillment is found, always ends in knowing the Lord and keeping his commands. And when I saw the movie, literally, with my family, watching it on the screen, that song was sung. The words that came to my mind were both Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament and Philippians chapter 3 in the New. Now, who wrote the book of Philippians? Paul, right? Paul was not one of the original apostles, that he was not one of the twelve that walked with Jesus, but he was a man who... After he had been persecuting the church, Jesus appeared to him on the road in the book of Acts, and he is converted to believer in Jesus Christ. And as he's converted, he becomes not only just a convert, he becomes the leader of this movement of Christianity to spread it throughout their known world. In the book of Philippians, he's writing to his favorite church, perhaps, the church that loved him dearly, that he loved dearly. And in chapter 3, he's starting to kind of shift to talk about some practical issues. But before he does that, he's going to give a little bit of a testimony. For the first uh, five years of my life, I grew up in a small country church outside of Dyersburg, Tennessee. Little bitty church. Southside Baptist Church. My grandmother was the VBS leader, children's director, WMU director. My grandfather was the um, RA director, discipleship training director. He was a deacon that they never let rolled off. So we were there all the time. And when I was growing up, I didn't know this, but I realized that they shared a pastor with other things going on. And so there were nights that the pastor would come and he just didn't have a lot to give. Because he'd been at another place or another time and they were fine with that. He'd just go in and say, listen, I don't have much of a message. And they say, we'll just do testimony night. Y'all know testimony nights, right? Share it all. Share it all. 
Somebody'd stand up. Now, the thing about Southside Baptist Church is, by the time I was five, when somebody stood up, I could give their testimony for them. Right? Because it's the same testimony every time, same people share, which I love. I love that community. I'm not making fun of that at all. But I could, I could share Moody's testimony. Moody was a guy in the church. I could share Miss Bertha's testimony. She was, I could share my grandfather, my grandmother's testimony because I knew them. Well, Paul shares his testimony as about as much as anybody in the New Testament. But this is a unique way he tells his testimony. Usually when he tells his testimony, he's talking about walking down the Damascus road. He looks up, there's a light blinding him, and the Lord speaks to him, and he says that he's going to follow the Lord. He doesn't give that description here, but it's a testimony nonetheless. He starts in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, saying this. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write you again this, about this is no trouble for me and a safeguard for you. So he's apparently written to them before. And they didn't get the message. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. So you have to understand about what's going on with Paul here is that he is talking to a group of people that um, were the church that he loved and was a part of. And he left to go plant another church. And some people came in behind to undo the work that Paul had done. So a group of people come and they say, listen, we're going to, we, we, we've heard that Paul's been here. We heard that Paul preached here. We're excited that Paul preached here. We're excited that Paul was here. But let me just say this. There are a couple of things Paul left out we need you to know. And Paul, as we've talked about, taught that you were saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And they would come and go, that's, 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 that's mostly right. But you do have to be Jewish before you can be a Christian. And the big issue there was circumcision. And so the mutilators of the flesh are those that would come in after Paul and say, you've got to be circumcised to be a true believer. But Paul said we were believers because we believed in Christ. We have to do that. He goes, well, Paul was partially right. He wasn't all the way right. That made Paul angry. You know, it's okay sometimes to get angry in the Lord. Can I get an amen in the house? He got angry. He write back and say, I mean, he calls them mutilators of the flesh and he says, don't listen to them. He says in verse three, for we are the circumcision, the ones who the spirit of God abides in boast. That's what we do. We boast in Christ Jesus. We don't put confidence in the flesh. And so he's talking about them when he shifts to his testimony. He says, although, listen, man, if anybody has grounds for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has grounds for it, I have more. Paul's going to list seven privileges that he experienced that ought to have gotten him everything he wanted in life. Four of them are by birth. Three are by achievement. He said, I had it all. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That is that he followed the law even from the eighth day of his birth. His parents were following the law. He was born of the nation of Israel. He is not someone that has come from another place and is trying to be a part of Israel. He was born of the nation of Israel, not only of Israel, but of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if you were around a few weeks ago when we talked about the last story in the book of Judges, that might not have seemed like something to be proud of. But Benjamin is the one that gave the first king. Benjamin considered a place of honor because within Benjamin's um, area was Jerusalem, which meant within Benjamin's area was the temple. He said, I come from the very heart of Israel. A Hebrew of Hebrews. 
That probably meant that in his house, they didn't speak Greek, they didn't speak other languages, they spoke Hebrew. And then he tells three things that he did, his accomplishments. He says, regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Pharisees, although given a bad reputation in the New Testament because of their encounters with Jesus in their day and time, were considered to be the most law abiding class of people in the Jewish community. They were the best religious people around. They were the Southern Baptist always going to church folks. They were the three times a week crowd. Sometimes four, even when the church was only open three, they still went when it wasn't open. He says, I was a Pharisee. He said, regarding zeal, if you question whether I really loved the church, loved what I was doing, loved the law, loved Judaism, I persecuted the church. The word persecuted there means literally chased, that he went after, that he pursued, that he took to flight the church, the church of Jesus Christ. Before his conversion, he persecuted them. And he said, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was a blameless. Now, Paul is not saying now that he was blameless before God. What he's saying is, if anybody could have obtained salvation through the law, I did. When Paul was a two or three year old little boy sitting on his mother's lap. If you were to ask him in life, what do you think would be the greatest thing you would accomplish? This would have been it. He had it all. Everything he ever wanted. Verse 7. But everything... You know what everything means? Everything. That was a gain to me I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. The word everything encompasses all that he has just said, but more than that, it is his life in totality before Jesus. And he uses the language of an accountant here. He says, what I used to put on the side of the ledger of my assets has now become my debit. What I used to put as something that was my gain is now a loss. You see, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, it changed who he was. It changed what he thought. What was once a gain is now loss. Now, here's the interesting thing about that word loss. It literally means forfeit, damage, or disaster. It's not just that he doesn't consider it an advantage anymore. There's a difference between something being an advantage or being neutral. He doesn't consider it even something to be neutral. It was a hindrance to him. It was a problem for him. It was a loss for him. It was something he wished he could have not had to worry about. His upbringing, where he was, what he did, how he lived, was a loss compared to knowing Jesus. He considered anything that might cause him to put his confidence in the flesh to be harmful. And in the next verse, we're not going to go there yet, but he's going to, you've seen it there. He considers everything to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, he says, he's about to give us the secret to life. He's going to give us the goal that all of us should have in life, what life is all about, why you're here. The question that people have been asking since the beginning of time. What's my purpose in life? What's my reason for being here? What's the reason that we're on this planet? Paul says, 
I'm going to give it to you. When the world is singing that the world, even if we held it, would never be enough. What they're crying out for is what is enough. Well, you can know what you think is your reason for being here by looking at what drives you, what controls you, what directs you, what guides you. There are a lot of people in this world directed by a need for approval or materialism or fear or guilt or resentment or anger. Knowing why you're here is vastly important because it gives us meaning. It simplifies our life. It focuses us on what we should care about. It motivates us. And if we believe, as we do, that the reason that we have these longings because there is something greater than this earth to which we are to be a part of, it prepares us for eternity with Christ. And so the question is, what is that purpose? What would be enough? It tells us right here. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss. He uses that phrase again and again in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says the goal in our lives is the present reality of knowing Jesus. Now, there's lots of ink spilled on what that phrase, knowing Christ, means. But I can tell you this, from the original language, it is evident that he is talking about experiential knowledge. Intimate knowledge, not head knowledge, not understanding knowledge. When I was a senior in high school, um, I played football. The only year I played football in my life, I was a senior in high school, We had a new football coach. His name was Neil Durbin. He's now the superintendent of schools in Dyersburg. He's a great man. He was our FCA leader. We had bonded over the fact that I had spoken at a couple of FCA events. He had played. He could lead music. Multi-talented guy. Great football coach. And he had this mandate from the school board to get guys out to play football. We didn't have a big enough football team. That when we got out there on Friday nights, the team was much smaller than the teams we were playing. I don't mean like physically, I just mean numbers wise. And so he went about to get everybody he could to play football. And he came to me and says, you want to play football? And I said, well, I've never played football on a team. I mean, I played in the backyard, but I'm probably a little behind developmentally on these guys I've been playing for seven years. He said, I just want you to play kickoff for a turn. I'm going to have a 12th man team that only plays kickoffs. You just got to practice three days a week. I said, that sounds awesome, right? Now, I was, I loved football, still do, wanted to play. I wanted to play, in fact, when I was seventh grade, found out I was type 1 diabetic the week before football practice started, and so my doctor suggested I wait. Well, I waited and never did, and so when he finally offered that to me, I said, sure. And I had heard from all my friends that played football about practice. Now, the reason I thought about that this week is because It's that time of year when the grass smells like football. Y'all know what I mean? Like when you go out to cut your grass and you walk out, it just smells like football. And so I went out to practice. And so we're practicing and we're learning our, 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 where we're going and where we're running. And it's the first live practice we're going to have where we can get hit. 
And I'm down on the end of the line because believe it or not, I used to, at this point in my life, I weighed 145 and could run. Best shape of my life. I'd been working out all summer. I could run. So I'm on the edge. I'm a gunner. I'm going down. My job is we were going to kick it short. My job is to hit the guy right when he catches the ball with my teammate, try to dislodge the ball, get a fumble so that our team can take over. Sounds like a great plan. And so he kicks it short. The ball goes up. I see it going. I am tracking towards my guy. And the next thing I know, I'm looking out my ear hole. And I see a hand extended down to me. And it's my best friend. Lou, I said, what in the world? He said, well, I asked if I could run reps against this because I thought you needed to know what football was about. Congratulations, you passed. And he pulled me up. Now, I knew about practice. I didn't know what it was like to get hit until that moment. You understand the difference? Like, I'd watch it on TV, like, ooh, I bet that felt different, right? I'd watch it from the sidelines, ooh. But until you're looking out your ear hole, you don't know what it's really like. The kind of knowledge that Paul talks about is not a, I've heard about Jesus somewhere, somehow. It's a, I know him. Experiential, real, intimate knowledge. But I think the words that come after that are as important as knowing Christ. Because there's this understanding that lots of people would love to know Jesus if they think they know what that brings. Because a lot of people think Jesus is the way to get to those other things they think will bring them happiness. He's the way to get to material things. He's the way to get to a great family. He's the way to get to. But Paul says that I have no problem giving up all that stuff. Because I know Jesus, my Lord. And the understanding is when you come to Christ to know him, you surrender completely to him. This is no prosperity gospel where you come to Jesus and you get a million. This is I come to Jesus and I give myself to him. He goes on to say more. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, he says. And he talked to them early on. They were concerned about him. The reason he wrote this letter is because they're worried about him. He's in prison. He's, well, are you okay, Paul? He says, because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things. I've lost it all. This is no prosperity thing. Paul is in prison, having lost everything he had to his name. He said, I've lost it all. And he says, I consider them as dung. Now, you may have a different version of the Bible, and your Bible may say something there like rubbish. Which is a word we don't use anymore. Nobody throws out the rubbish anymore. But the word there is literally of excrement on the ground. He says all that stuff is dung because it's allowed me to gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Verse 10, my goal, my plan, my purpose is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. He says, listen, I want to know Christ. 
on that intimate experiential knowledge. I want to completely surrender to him. He says, and I want two things in my life. I want the power of the resurrection. Paul believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as do I. He believed it with such a passion that he knew it guaranteed his own and that he allowed him to live his life with complete abandon because he knew that he was going to raise again in the end. That this world is not all that there is. We need to be reminded on a regular basis that this is not it. You ever heard the phrase, they are so heavenly minded, they're no any earthly good? You ever heard that? He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. There are a ton of Christians in this world that are so earthly minded, they're not heavenly good. Because they're thinking about here and now as it. That job promotion, my family, that prestigious thing, this athletic event, this weekend and what we're going to be doing this weekend, and you're neglecting the emotional, spiritual part of who you are, the natural part of what God has created us to do, to look to Him for fulfillment in our lives, and we think we're filling it with everything else, but we have lacked to see that this is not it. It gives you a unique perspective. If you walk into my house in Dyersburg with my parents, you'll see on the wall of the bedroom that is mine, even though I've never lived in the house in which they live, a wall of plaques and trophies. And I always think in a small way about that with this verse, because here's the reality. When I got to college, nobody cared what I did in high school. Right? Nobody today, when assessing who I am, says, now what was your GPA at high school? What was that? What clubs were you a part of? Now, I won't say, I won't say this as strongly to the next group because we've got some high schoolers that need to be involved in stuff, right? Need to try on their grades. But once I hit college, nobody cared about high school. Here's the thing. I think when we get to eternity, we are going to laugh at ourselves about how seriously we took life on this planet. As if it is what really mattered. The reason that most of us are screaming, when will it ever be enough, is because we've tried to fill our lives with things that were never meant to satisfy us. But Paul says something else. Not only... The power of his resurrection that is available to us now, he says, but sharing in his sufferings. And that doesn't mean we add to the sufferings of Christ. It's a realization that Christ suffered for us. And if we are going to be faithful to him, we will as well. We are connected to him. Paul saw that as proof that he knew him intimately. Verse 12. Not that I've already reached that goal or I'm already perfect. But then he says these phrases, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I've been taken hold of by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. He's not saying I'm there, but one thing I do, this is my goal in life, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Towards the end of the greatest showman, in fact, the last moment of the greatest showman. What happens there is Hugh Jackman comes to an understanding that he has almost lost his family. And the freaks 
the unusual people, as he calls them, that had come to be a part of his circus, surround him and encourage him. And in that moment, he makes a commitment that he is going to live his life pursuing what he should pursue regardless of the outcome. The last song of the show is a song, is a song called From Now On. And I won't, again, I won't sing that for you. All the God's people said. By the way, I just want you all to know this, is, this doesn't have anything to do with the sermon today. But in the second service last week, apparently I turned my microphone on too soon. They got to hear me sing Amazing Grace with Jeff. Jeff and I were doing a duet. Luckily, only about four people heard it. But And he says, just the first part of that chorus is from now on. These eyes will not be blinded by the lights. And he says, from now on, what I put off to tomorrow starts tonight. It's almost like an invitation song, isn't it? I don't think it's in the hymnal anywhere. But the point is, he says, it's time to focus on what I need to focus on. So here's my question. What are you pursuing? What are you chasing? What are you going after? If it's anything other than knowing Jesus as Lord, it's going to be not enough. Never be enough. The only place to find true fulfillment in life is in Jesus. Let's pray together.